Riz Ahmed is a remarkably talented person. Not only is he a world-class rapper, but he is also an actor of a unique caliber. His newest film, Sound of Metal, in which he plays a drummer that loses his hearing and has to decide between getting a cochlear implant or joining the deaf community, is both powerful and emotionally resonant. His performance is, in my opinion, the best performance of this year. This is Riz Ahmed. Okay, Riz, so the first thing is a person in your life that's been particularly important or had resonance for you. Who would that person be? I think that person in my life would be my big brother. He was someone that I looked up to and kind of idolized growing up and he got me into rap music. It was kind of his hidden stash of cassettes that that got me into music. I remember him telling me that, you know, don't listen to this when I'm not here because it's got swearing in it. So of course, as soon as he left the house, I started <laughs> memorizing all the lyrics. But he just really, he took, he took care of me, you know, like he kicked a lot of people's ass for me as well. We didn't grow up in the roughest neighborhood, but also not in the... The, the least rough neighborhood, you know what I mean? Like things would happen and, and he was always there for me. You know, I really, I, I owe him a lot. Probably owe him my life. What's his name? His name's Gamran. Gamran. Did he have yeah. a nickname like you? My nickname was Golu. He named me Golu when I was born because I had a round little head. But my name for him was Bhai. And Bhai is, just means brother. Just what you call your big brother. So my whole life, I just called him Bhai. And it was only more recently, you know, we're both grown men now that I call him Gamran. How much older than you is he? Um, he's almost three years older, so he's not a lot older, but in a way, it was like, he was almost like a father figure in some ways because I think in particular, if you're kind of a third culture kid, there's a generation gap between you and your parents, but also a kind of culture gap. Uh-huh. So they might not necessarily be able to equip you with all the lessons you need to navigate this new society that they themselves migrated to. So it ends up being your older siblings who almost become your parents for you. And that's an experience I think a lot of children of immigrants can relate to. So yeah, when when I think about it, he's, you know, the age gap between me and him is smaller than the age gap between me and some of my closest friends. But in my mind, he was always like, you know, a giant. What was the first rap record that he had you listen to? What Do you remember the first one? Um, I think it, the the CD that changed my life a little bit was DOC, Portrait of a Masterpiece. And uh, um, Dr. Dre produced it. Uh-huh. And what was interesting about that for me was just how fast he was rapping. I remember there's a whole kind of moment on the track where, on this one track where DOC runs out of breath. And he's like, they make a whole thing of it where he's rapping so fast and he stops and he starts panting and Dre's like, yo, Doc, man, what's wrong? He's like, yo, wait, wait a minute, Dre, i got to catch my breath. And I was, my mind was blown. I was like, oh my God, he's going so fast. Couldn't possibly go any faster. And I know I was quite a hyperactive little kid, so it kind of, I was like, I'm going to do this. This is what I need to do. I had a lot of excess energy, let's say, that I needed to find some way of venting. So it, it really kind of got me writing lyrics and rapping as well. How old were you when you started performing? I mean, I think when I was in my teens Mm. and, you know, you start going to parties and there's a DJ there and there's an MC, particularly in the UK and in London, you know, it was a kind of, 
uh, jungle music and garage music was a part of the kind of nightlife culture there. So there's always be, you know, a DJ there and always be an MC there. And I remember just kind of like, just, yeah, elbowing my way to the, to the turntables always and kind of begging for the mic or trying to snatch the mic. So I think it was in my teens, I'd say about when I really started performing, I'd say probably about 15, 14, 15. Wow, you were a baby. Did your parents ever go? Did they ever see what you were doing? Uh, no, I mean, my parents wouldn't really go to like house parties for the teenagers. <laughs> that would just be weird and, and embarrassing for me as well. Um, but they, they, they kind of knew that I was into it and they kind of saw, I think, or they heard recordings. I would play them sometimes recordings. Or they, you know, to be honest, they would hear me in my bedroom practicing. That's the main thing. And they'd come in going like, what are you doing? Like, what, what is this? Like, come downstairs and eat, you know? Um, stop locking yourself up in your room, just talking to yourself. I really thought I was going mad. So the second thing is a place that has had meaning for you. Yeah, I think a place that has significance to me is, of course, London, mm. you know? That's my home. That's where I grew up, you know, and it's where I'm from. You know, I kind of feel like I'm a Londoner first and foremost before anything else. And, and that's because I think London in a way encompasses so many different identities. It's such a global city. It's probably the most international multicultural city in the world. And I think it has this kind of amazing thing about it which which I can kind of almost relate to in my own personality which is that you've got these cultures living side by side and these different classes living side by side you know I feel like having spent more time in America you notice that a lot of cities are a lot more segregated whereas in the in in London in particular look there's there's segregation there's there's barriers and boundaries of class and race of course there are like everywhere but we just have kind of social housing projects or council estates everywhere so it means people just share space from the most, you know, the most posh to the most working class. People are kind of living side by side in London in a way that is really quite unique in most major cities. The other thing about London that, and I don't know it that well, although I did spend a fair, I've spent a fair amount of time there, is how big it is. London is big. You know, to get from one side of Manhattan to another side is very fast. But London's more like Los Angeles in that it feels very vast. Do, it, does it not feel that way to you because you grew up there? No, it does. And to be honest, there's still so many parts of London that I'm still discovering. You know, they say, you know, North Londoners joke about crossing the river to go to South London and say, you need to get your visa. You need to make sure you get your passport <laughs> before you cross the river. You know, South Londoners always be talking about, it, it, it is like going to, a, you know, it was a different world, particularly growing up, you know, even leaving my neighborhood to go to central London, the West End, let alone East London. I only started to get to know East London, you know, after I was 18 and, you know, and Shoreditch and all that was taken off and spending more time there. So it is endless. It's an endless journey of discovery. And, and yeah, like, look, I mean, there's other amazing cities, but London is, London, I think is like, is it twice the size of New York or four times the size of New York? It's, it's gigantic. Yeah, it's big. And, and um, I think the size of it, combined with the mixture of different vibes and energies, but then the fact that you find them all back to back to back, cheek by jowl, is just so unique. You know, you never know what you're going to get when you turn the next corner, what kind of energy you're going to find. And usually you find a mixture of those energies right next to each other. Did you find yourself wanting to leave the part you grew up in? 
Well, only in the way that I think most people do. You know, there was nothing in particular that I, that I hated about it or anything. It's just that you kind of start broadening your horizons and you see what's out there in the world and you right. want to kind of like, you know, get in on some of that action as well. You know, in, in, in a way, like the neighborhood that I grew up in is, is, you know, it's like so many London suburbs. It's like when there's a new kind of wave of immigrants, they would come there. So when, when I was growing up, it was it was actually mainly Irish with some South Asian. Huh. Then as I've got a bit older, it became predominantly South Asian. Then in the 90s, late 90s, I remember there were a lot of Somali immigrants that started coming in. And then, you know, post to, you know, in the 21st century, there's been a massive kind of Eastern European and Polish influx. Oh, wow. So in a way, you know, people talk about the suburbs and I don't know, I think it's different to the American suburbs, which, which are perhaps maybe a bit more manicured and a bit more manufactured. There's something actually about the London suburbs that is the, that, that accurately takes the temperature of really what is happening in the city or who's making the city tick. So I don't know. I mean, and there's also something about, I don't know, it's just like there's something romantic about the English suburbs as well in that it's all low rise, you uh-huh. know, you just have endless skies. And then London also as a city, I think is the greenest capital city in the world. I think it's like 40% of London is, is green spaces. So it's, it's interesting. You have that kind of like the energy of somewhere like Manhattan, but you've got the density of somewhere more like Brooklyn or Queens, mm-hmm. you know, and then that diversity of Brooklyn and Queens. So yeah, it's, it's, it's special to me. And I think that there's just the uniqueness of London as a culture, I think is constantly reflected in the, in the, in the music that's coming out of London and in the creativity that's coming out of London. I feel like whether our writers or our filmmakers or our musicians, they're really kind of doing innovative things. You know, I think we're consistently kind of at the cutting edge of what's going on culturally. And that, that's a source of pride for me. So the third thing is a inanimate object that has meaning for you. Mm. Could be something connected to Sound of Metal. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, that's, that's, a really, that's a really good suggestion because I think I would probably choose the drumsticks. Oh, wow. Kept after Sound of Metal. You know, to me, there's just so much more than drumsticks. You know, it tells a story of, of going on that journey of preparing for Sound of Metal and also shooting it and everything that I learned from that journey, which was so much more than learning how to play the drums, I feel like it kind of changed me as a person and, and as an actor. So I think those, those drumsticks kind of, yeah, they definitely represent a shift for me. So tell me on this podcast about when you first, and I saw that Darius Martyr won Best First Film at Directors Guild, which is so great for directing. Yeah, it's amazing and, and so well-deserved. I mean, in a way, you can't really believe that he is a first-time director because the film is so bold and yes. so precise in its vision, so innovative with on a, from a technical point of view in terms of how he uses sound design or the way he chooses to shoot it, where, you know, almost the whole film is shot, and, you know, it's on one lens and it's shot on film and we shot the schedule in sequence. There's just a lot of really kind of, brave and decisive things that he did that that kind of, I think, t- to me, set him apart as a director and particularly as a first-time director. When you first met, did he say, okay, 
you know, you're going to have to learn how to play the drums. You're going to have to learn how to sign. Did he sort of go down the list of things that you would have to conquer in terms of learning? Yeah, as he put it, you would you would try and scare actors off the project. <laughs> Couldn't scare you. <laughs> well, that's, that was music to my ears, really, because I kind of, yeah, I don't know what it is about me, but I kind of enjoy being in that zone of feeling like, yeah, there's a mountain to climb. Yeah. You know, that's what kind of gets me up in the morning. If I feel like it's not scary and how challenging it is, then I think I can kind of get lazy. And it's that, it's that fear and that, you know, that sense of like, I don't know if I can do it that makes me want to push myself. So yeah, when I met up with him and I mean, first of all, I loved the script. It was just so heartbreaking. And, you know, he wrote on Blue Valentine and Place Beyond the Pines. It's really kind of emotional films, kind of epic, even though they're very intimate. And so, you know, that really resonated with me. And then meeting up with him, we were kind of, we both, I think, really connected just on a personal level, on a human level, you know, in, in our desire to want to try and take risks and create from a personal place. But then when he said, added that extra challenge, as you said about, okay, and whoever plays this role is going to have to learn to play the drums and learn American Sign Language and be fluent uh, at sign language and be able to, you know, play drums in a real gig in front of a real audience. I thought, this is going to be an experience. No matter what happens, I'm going to grow from this. And so I jumped at the chance. Did you learn the drums first? Was that the first thing you took on? I did I had to do it all at the same time. You know, we didn't have the time to, to do one and do the other. So I'd wake up in the morning do two and a half hours American Sign Language with my instructor, Jeremy Stone, became a good friend and uh, trying to work my way up to fluency so I could improvise on set with the deaf actors that we cast. And then after that, I spent a couple of hours with my acting coach, Berg, Gregory Berger-Sobek, who, who really kind of actually was, was instrumental in creating some shifts in the way that I approach my work, in particular with this project. And then after that, I'd spend two hours drumming with my drum teacher, Guy Licata, and we'd go and usually strip down to our socks and underpants and just like, you know, <laughs> psyching each other out, like smashing these drums like maniacs in his, his basement in Brooklyn. And then after that, I would go and work out with my trainer, Leighton Grant, who's also um, hard of hearing for the physical transformation element. Then I'd grab a bit of food and go to an uh, Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous meeting educate myself about recovery culture and, and recovery programs. And then at night, I'd usually go and see a gig. Another kind of spirit guide for me was um, Sean Powell from the band Surfboard, who's a drummer with a, with a you know, history of addiction. And right. a lot of the tattoos I have in the film are actually stolen from Sean with his blessing. So, um, so that was it, you know, from sign to the end, you, you end with the gig and just did that every day for seven months. And when you go through a process like that, you learn things consciously, but you also learn a lot of things unconsciously and it, it informs, uh, you know, the character and, and, and the process. So when you were in the show Girls, did you learn how to surf? You know, I went on a couple of surf lessons. Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> I was not good at it. I, I have since taken more surf lessons and gotten a bit better. I, that's actually one of the roles that I look back at and go, I wish I could go back and redo that one. You were great. Um, you were I great. I always feel that. No, but it's, I mean, that's very kind of you. But I mean, it's just because I, I, I know how to surf a bit better now. And I've spent <laughs> more time around surf instructors. So I just feel like I could. Yeah, that was one of the ones I got parachuted in with like three days before we shoot. But yeah, maybe maybe I'll get to play another surf instructor down the line. Maybe Lena can write a sequel to that, a spin-off movie for us. 
No, I always thought that was, you know, a wonderful piece of casting by Lena Dunham, that you were the surf instructor that uh, becomes her baby daddy. Were you surprised when she cast you in that? Was that like a shock? I wasn't expecting her to to say, hey, come and be a surf instructor that gets me pregnant. But I guess you don't <laughs> really expect anything in this in this game, you know? Someone described it to me as in a creative career is like you're standing in the you know, standing by the goal, waiting for your teammate to cross the ball in so you can header it in. And the ball comes from behind you and accidentally hits you on the back of the head and knocks you out. And it dribbles over the goal line and somehow you scored. That's always the way it is. You know, we try and control things, but actually the things we don't see coming end up bearing the most fruit sometimes because we don't have time to overthink it or try and control it and strangle the life out of it by controlling it. It just, it happens and you just have to run with it. Well, one of the nice things about girls, and also I think this is even true in Sound of Metal, is I think you're quite good at being a romantic lead. So I think maybe the next movie you should just do like a rom-com. All right, let's do it. So the next thing is an event in your life that looked like it was going to be something very negative that turned out to be something positive. To be honest, there's so much. Isn't that just like when you look back on your life, you can kind of, it's true of almost everything, right? Okay, so something that I thought that was really going to be a negative and was was not what I'd signed up for was was going to Oxford. Ah, yeah. interesting. Yeah. So I, so, uh, you know, I got told by my school teachers um, that I should apply and, that, you know, I had a chance of getting in. And, I, and I, you know, from the day of the interview, when I went there, I felt completely out of place. I was kind of actually shouted at during one of my interviews by the, by the professors there who just clearly just was, ready to dismiss me, didn't really have any time for me. I think I got in mainly off the back of the strength of the reference I got from my old headmaster saying, look, you can be a bit rough around the edges, but give him a chance, basically. He's, you know, he's got, he's got something. And really, to be honest, my time at Oxford was quite troubled. I, I, um, I just didn't feel that I fit in. What did you study? What was your emphasis? It was politics, philosophy, and economics. It's called PPE. Wow. Yeah, I dropped economics because I can't do maths at all. Um, <laughs> so I just became PP. Um, but yeah, it was just it was just a bit of an alien landscape. It felt like to me, it was a it was a space of such privilege and such a kind of narrow social strata that was so the opposite of everything that I was talking about that I love in London. Uh-huh. You know, it's it's just a mix of every culture and every class and everyone's in it together. This was not that. And and I felt very alienated, very out of place, you know, I guess experienced a lot of what we now call microaggressions. There maybe wasn't the vocabulary for that back then. And also explicit aggressions and also just kind of feeling like, what am I doing here? I want to be making music. At this point, I've got, a, you know, I'm performing on some local pirate radio stations. I'm perform- performing at parties. All my friends are going to these bigger parties, put- putting on club nights in London. And what am I doing over here? you know, spending all this time with people who don't have a clue about any of the stuff that I love. Yes. And, and what I kind of realized looking back is 
how positive that was for me to be pushed so far out of my comfort zone and to persevere and actually realize that if there isn't space made for people like me here, I'm going to make that space. Hmm. And so what I did was I started my own club night there. I said, look, I'm not going to put my, the thing I really care about, which is performing music on hold for this degree. So I'm going to start a club night. And there's got to be other people out there like me who want something like this. And it was just really a bit of a Hail Mary. I, I remember walking around to nightclub, nightclubs, you know, one of my first nights there, just going, uh, you know, I'm an MC, I'm from London. I'm going to, I've got all these people that want to come to my party. I'm looking for a venue for next week. And people thought I was insane. And someone just had a spare night said, all right, cool, but you got to put down a deposit. I remember put down some of my student loan. It's yeah. insane. Oh my God. And did it. And it was just a huge success. And it, it really kind of paid for my way through college in terms of spending money and living expenses. It connected me to some of the best friends I've ever made in my life who I'm still so close to. And it allowed me to continue honing my craft as a performer. And really the lesson for me that I took forward from that was, yeah, you know, you, you've got to step up and make that space if people aren't going to make it for you. And it was in a way training for what happened for me in the film industry, in particular the British film industry, where there's that similar kind of, I think, sometimes a bit of a narrow skew towards privilege. So I don't know, I feel like it was it was a really, really a formative experience. Very difficult, very lonely at times, very challenging at times, but I definitely grew new muscles of resilience from it. Did you ever think of quitting, like leaving early? Straight away. Yeah. As soon yeah. as I got there, I thought of quitting. As soon <laughs> as I got there, I remember, I remember like three weeks in, I just emailed all my tutors and said, I don't know if I can do this. I went back home. I thought about, I was actually depressed almost straight away, I think. Uh-huh. And you know, some of it is also, you can't put it all on the place and the institution. You know, I was an angsty 18 year old, you know, I always felt like really throughout my whole teens that I just had this volcano in my chest that's waiting to go off. And to some extent, I still feel like that every day. I wake up with that explosion in my chest and I need to find some way of letting that bomb off. And, you know, I don't know, it was just, it was just a very challenging time for me. And and I thought straight away that I'm getting the hell out of here. This is not where I want to be. And it was really to be honest, it was a kind of pride. It was a kind of stubbornness that stopped me from quitting. I thought, I don't like quitting things. You know, I think part of me almost thought, let me prove that I don't need to quit because I'm finding it challenging and then I'll quit. You know what I mean? I think that's the best attitude you could have. Yeah, I didn't quit though. (laughs) (laughs) Did you start acting at Oxford? No, I started um, in high school from a similar experience, really. We got um, kind of these government-assisted scholarships, me and my siblings, to attend these private schools that were like about an hour and a half from where, you know, we grew up. So we were kind of bused to these schools. And um, I guess, you know, in a way, I had a similar experience there, being there, being around a lot of kind of privilege and, and, you know, being in an institution that maybe wasn't geared towards people like me. And and I was causing a lot of trouble. I remember my first week in school as an 11-year-old, I I remember I put a chair through a window. And... um, it was just a lot going on, you know, I just had a lot, like that volcano in me again was just <laughs> going off. And and um, it was actually a teacher that just kind of took me to one side and said, if you mess around in my classroom, you're just going to be in every Saturday for Saturday morning detentions and you're, mm-hmm. you're going to get kicked out. 
And if you mess around on stage, then you can get a round of applause. So what do you want to do? And um, I remember there was a play called South, you know, South Pacific, the musical, but mainly it was only the, the 17 and 18 year olds that would play, that, that would act in the school play every year. But in South Pacific, there are the roles of these two kids, uh, Jerome and Nagana. And I got cast as Jerome, this little kid. They said they wanted a small Eurasian boy. And um, yeah, I remember, you know, my first night performing there, all I had to do was skip around on stage and sing this song in French. And I was skipping around in flip-flops. And the first night I just dropped. And I just scuffed my flip-flops and just dropped flat on my face. I remember oh. the gasp audience now just going, <gasps> and um, came off stage. I was crying. But we did that play with the girls' school. So then suddenly there were all these 17, 18-year-old girls that were uh. doting on me. And I was like, <laughs> you know, this isn't that bad, even when it's bad, actually. It's only upsides to this. I don't know. Um, so you fell every night after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just take the fall, right? <laughs> So the final question is a purely joyous event in your life, something that was completely happy, just joyous. You know, I'm just literally just the most recent thing that happened that was just unquestionably joyous. Uh, I hate to bring it straight back to, you know, work or whatever or the film, but honestly, it was seeing Sound of Metal get all those Oscar nominations uh-huh. to get six nominations. It's a rare thing in your life or in your creative life if you get to work on a project like that that means so much to everyone involved. And it means so much to us for, for so many different reasons. One, because we, we put in 110%, all of us. We went to places that we've never gone before. Secondly, because it was 13 years in the making, you know, Darius had, had this idea for this film 13 years ago, never let it go. It was made against the odds where we yeah. had almost no budget the night before we started, the financiers pulled the plug. He came to my room the night before and said, listen, don't want to mess up your night's sleep, but we lost all our money. We might not be able to make the film. This is after eight months of preparation. He goes, I'm going to make some calls. And we pulled it off. It was just the whole thing was such a high wire act. And to know what it means to so many of our deaf actors and so much of the deaf community who said that it's such a step forwards in deaf representation. Honestly, man, there's, there's nothing like that feeling because... We didn't make this film for accolades. I didn't even make it knowing that anyone would see it. But it's just the sweetest feeling to, to know that people have seen it and that they will see it and that it means something to people. It's a rare gift if you go through an experience like that. And I just feel privileged to have been part of it. When we got those nominations. I was jumping up and down on my bed like a kid. You know, like, it was like I was six years old again. Did you get up early to watch the announcement? Yeah, I got up early to watch the announcement. And, you know, the funny thing is when, when, when my name got announced, you know, you feel almost a bit sheepish. You're like, oh, okay, well, that's nice. I'll, I'll take the encouragement and keep going, you know. Uh-huh. As far as I, I'm, I'm right at the beginning of my journey as a, as, as a, you know, creatively. And like I said, I'll take that, I'll take that encouragement and I'm, you know, I've got further to go. I'm going to keep going. So that's not the thing that makes you lose your shit celebrating. The stuff that makes you lose your mind celebrating is when you see, you know, poor Racy being nominated you know, the, the screenplay, best picture, yeah. you know, just sound. Sound. You know, just what Nicola Becker did with the sound is so insane. He would just be on set 
recording the sound of my eyelashes blinking and me swallowing and record my heartbeat after every emotional scene and say, this is what's going to be the sonic landscape of this piece. So I just know what went into it. I just know the amount of work that went into it. And, and for it to be recognized like that is, it was just joy, man. Did you see it in Sundance when it was in Sundance? Did you go to Sundance? In when Toronto. It was- in Toronto. Toronto. Uh, yeah, it premiered in Toronto. Um, I did. And you know, the, what was special about that, and it's one of the kind of, there's many tragedies of COVID, but I guess for this film, it was that that screening brought hearing and deaf audiences together in a cinema, in a theater. And that very rarely happens because most films are not open captioned. Closed captioned is when you've got the option, turn them on and off. Open captioned is when it's burned into every print of the film. And that's what we have in Sound of Metal. We have an open captioned film. So deaf audiences and hearing audiences are there side by side. And some jokes you hear the deaf audience react to, the hearing people don't get the sign language. Some, some moments you hear the you know, hearing audiences react to stuff. That, but they're sharing that experience together. And it's a shame that we haven't been able to do that, you know, obviously because of COVID. But that, that was pretty special, you know. And I, and I still think this film's got that power of bringing people together because without sounding corny, it's a, quite, it's a pretty spiritual film, you know, it in is. terms of what it's about at its heart. I saw it was one of the last films I saw in a theater before the lockdown. Oh, wow. And it was really one of those moments where I just went, this is why I love movies. This is a world. This is seeing another world. You know, this is something you don't, you don't expect. I didn't know anything about it. It was just, you were so remarkable. And the whole thing is so overwhelming. It's a very overwhelming film in a great way. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because I'm starting to learn that whatever experience you go through making a film is kind of what an audience will, will go through watching it, you know, ideally. And it was an overwhelming experience for me making this film because of the challenges, but also because of just of learning those skills, but also just the challenge of, of making a film like this in, in this time scale and budget. And, and, and it's amazing to, to understand that. There's one thing in the movie that I always think about. Obviously, your drumming is incredible, the sign language. But there's a moment where the character gets up early and is making breakfast. And yeah. there was something about the way you moved around that van or whatever, what, what, what would you call it? You, it's a trailer. It's an RV or an Airstream. RV, yeah. yes, Airstream. I don't know if that was such a small thing, but I thought it was almost like so real, like you'd lived there forever. You could feel how much that place meant to you so that later in the film when you sell, when you have to sell it, there's so much emotion connected to it. And it's such a small scene, but it made a big impression on me for some reason. Oh man, you know, it's interesting. Uh, that was my own wake-up routine at that moment, you know? Ah. <laughs> well, that's moment. why it seems so natural. <laughs> yeah, I'd, I'd wake up and do those push-ups and air squats and make myself a hor- horrible-tasting smoothie. You know, because by that point, I'd been living into the character for about seven, eight months with, with that schedule I described. So it was about kind of allowing those lines to really blur between ourselves and the characters. And, you know, in that, in that RV, we spent so much time in it. Yeah. You know, so much time. We, it wasn't the kind of film where you had trailers. You could all go back to the trailer. It was, you know, we were basically living in that thing, me and Olivia. So, yeah, there, there, there was that connection. And Darius is very clever in that way in terms of creating 
that authenticity. So you're not just you're not just acting a scene, you're living it. You know, you have a connection to everything in that scene. You have a connection to that prop. You haven't just stepped on set. You've already spent weeks in that in that airstream by the time we start. So I think it's it's about process that, that can allow for that. And Darius made space for that process. One more question, which is do you miss him? Do you miss the character? You know, the characters you play never leave you, I think. Uh-huh. Yeah, I think um, they unlock a part of you and hopefully every character you play unlocks a new part of you and ex- it expands your, your idea of who you are or who you could be in different circumstances and, and that stays with you. And I think that's why I love this so much is because you grow your craft, but you also just grow as a person, ho- hopefully, if, you, if you're lucky to have good experiences and if you work with good people, if you surround yourself with good hearts, they'll expand your heart. And, and so I feel like Ruben kind of, yeah, he's, he's with me, you know? Yeah, you should see the smoothie I had this morning. Man. <laughs> well, thank you so much. You are a gem and I really re- admire and respect you so much as an actor and as a person. So thank you so much for talking to me. Thanks for taking out the time. Thank you. for listening to Five Things with Lynn Hirschberg. The podcast is produced by Michael Beckert. The audio engineers are Rich Serbini and Max Solomon at Hangar Studios. The music is by Robin Shore. Special thanks to Michelle Schwartz and Lindsay Gallen. And thanks to Sarah Moonves for making everything at W possible. Most of all, thank you to Zora. La la la